Welcome to Impact Unicorns, the podcast where you meet inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies. And now, here is your host, Dr. Internil Ghosh. Award-winning author, investor, and advisor to global leaders. Welcome to this week's episode of Impact Unicorns. I'm your host, Indranil Ghosh, and today I'm excited to welcome Bupinda Buller to the show. Bupinda has a distinguished career in genomic research at the Harvard Medical School, the Whitehead Institute, and Novartis's Institute for Biomedical Research. Bupinda's explorations in genomic drug development brought him face-to-face with the challenge of storing and analyzing vast amounts of data. And Bupinda uncovered opportunities to improve the data storage and informatics side of his discipline. And he realized that applying those insights to improve data center efficiency more broadly could produce a billion-dollar business. And so SwissVault was born. And in five short years, Bupinda has developed data storage servers that are able to store 14 times more data per unit volume and operate 10 times greater energy efficiency than today's systems. Rupinder, it's really great to have you on the show. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. And thank you, first of all, having me on your podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're um, recording this on New Year's Eve 2021. So as we go into the bold new future that is 2022, it's, it's really good to start with such an inspiring story, um, because I think with Swiss Vault, uh, you're really going at the heart of one of the big challenges of our time, which is to address um, the huge uh, cost of storing increasingly large amounts of data. And Swiss Vault, which is your first venture, uh, seems to be attacking this head on. Um, it's interesting to me when I talk to entrepreneurs to sort of get a little bit of their backstory because um, people come to entrepreneurship uh, through many different paths. Some, you know, are sort of born entrepreneurs. It's the only thing they've ever done. Others, like yourself, you grow into it after uh, extensive careers, in your case, in research and in large corporate environments. Um, tell us a little bit about, you know, how your early career in life sciences gradually migrated into uh, this exciting venture that you're taking on right now. Well, well, thank you. So basically, the it's true. I had a very extensive uh, academic cre- um, career, and when I started in my academics, I really was sort of lined to become a professor. And I thought, uh, and then, but I had a chance meeting with one of the uh, very senior Canadian researchers who said, "Be careful what you ask for; you just might get it." And uh, they made sure that I thought carefully about the decisions I made and what, what was I was experiencing. And academia is great. It's a great to be under the, Ivy, under the Ivy Tower. But at the same time, I also wanted to make impact. And I was always looking for ways to take my ideas and com, you know, build a, a commercial model so you can, you, know, you can realize the impact. In a, you know, so if you, if you have a, if a drug molecule, I was developing a platform in, uh, when I was in Boston use yeast as a way to do drug discovery but I didn't know very much about drug discovery and that's how I when I had the chance opportunity to uh, work at Novartis to learn more about the drug discovery principles I jumped for it because I realized that this is an opportunity for me to get a vast amount of knowledge that I don't have and acquire it very quickly 
And so that's how that happened. But but this is so this is not this is my first real venture that's gone much further. But I've had other um, starts where I tried to take ideas and commercialize them. And for instance, the very first one was to take this yeast model for drug discovery and commercialize it almost about uh, 15 years ago. And then about five years ago, I did try to build another system we call the Science Publication Networks to bring reproducibility to data. We spend vast amounts of taxpayers' money to do research, but there's this kind of uh, ominous problem that's coming up, which is that a lot of it is not reproducible. And so, uh, and that's the underlying principle behind scientific discoveries that become our guiding principles today is that they're reproducible and that uh, and we wanted to help the institutions become more reproducible. And so that was, in terms of this adventure, uh, um, th that's basically how it jumped up is that I was a, sorry, I'm going to go three, two, one <laughs> in the editing. So three, two, one, basically in this venture in Swiss Vault, um, I was looking for a way to help organizations manage vast amounts of data for genomics because my background is in genomics research. And uh, genomics is one of those things that's, which is your most private data. It's your most private data on this planet. And it also belongs to everyone in your family and including your future descendants. And we were trying to say, well, if, uh, if this data gets mismanaged somehow, if it's on somebody else's server, it gets lost, it'll affect future generations. And, you know, they may be disadvantaged from getting life insurance. They might be disadvantaged from getting jobs based on information that we um, learn about in genomics, about what, you know, what impacts their health and, or maybe future capabilities or something. And so we became very concerned about you know, how this data was being managed. We wanted to give the tools to the organizations and the individuals to be able to manage that data properly. So you're one of these creative people that clearly gets excited about solving problems in the world. And um, it seems like you're thinking about uh, your own drug development, but also you know, your customers, uh, not just the patients, but probably hospitals or other places that are going to be repositories of this very private information. Um, so how did it go from there, which is thinking about their data storage problems and their data privacy issues, to coming up with the idea for Swiss Vault? Well, um, the, when, I, when, it's, when, I, when I saw this data growing, actually I was leading a program here in Switzerland. I was on uh, bringing people together to leverage this next a uh, new emerging technology called DNA sequencing. And DNA sequencing, as it was done in the old ways, took 10 years to sequence one human genome and cost a couple of billion dollars. But by mid-2005, uh, new technologies were coming out and they became much more accessible by the end of that decade, 2009. And I got my hands on a sequencer in 2009. I was already at Novartis trying to help uh, build drug discovery molecules for you know, various diseases but I jumped on the opportunity to understand what is the variations that drive cancer drug resistance. Novartis has a lot of drugs for cancer, but we all know that almost invariably they will become resistant to the drugs. So I said, I wanna sequence these cancers and figure out what are the mutations that drive this. And they, everybody said, there's way too many mutations you'll never figure out. But actually we showed that it will work. In 2009, we showed that we could sequence cancers and build an interesting algorithm, a perfect algorithm that will discern the mutations that are relevant. But by that process, 
we generated a data of that's equivalent to one terabyte for a genome, one genome. And that's like 1,000 DVD movies equivalent for one cancer sample. And we were like, wow, how are hospitals manage this data? And we, we never thought about, uh, you know, that, you know, scaling data storage servers would be a big deal at that time. However, the critical turning point came around when 2012, when I had a ex-colleague at the Whitehead Institute at MIT, and he said, I can tell someone's last name just by looking at the DNA sequence. I don't need additional information. And uh, so we were like, that's impossible. But actually, it's a very simple principle. It is that your Y chromosome is passed down from father to son to grandson. And that's also how your last name is passed down. And if you have a little bit of information about Y chromosome, you can follow generations uh, up and down, you know, for hundreds of years. And at that point is where the lightning rod hit because I was like, well, uh, this is your most private data, but doesn't belong to you. It belongs to everybody else, right? You know, so if somebody uses it, the genome sequencing service and shares that data, they're exposing just about everybody else in that family tree and future descendants. And that was the lightning rod that hit. And we said, we need to figure out a better solution. And we were looking for something, we never found it. So we made some, made Swiss fault to address that. And this, um concept of just explosion of data isn't just in life sciences it's it's panning out across industry after industry so uh, in a way that you are looking at you know one use case one problem but it had mirror images across the economy and so it seems like swiss vault is is not just solving you know the problem for you know genomic research but a whole host of different uh, applications um tell us a little bit about you know this explosion in data um, and in fact, in fact, how expensive uh, it is and what kind of a toll it takes on the environment, because the stats are actually quite staggering. Oh, correct. So I think about mid uh, uh, this last decade, about 2015, as machine learning and AI really came into prominence, then it really became a race to collect lots and lots of data. So organizations that had a lot of data would become really efficient in terms of Minimizing, minimizing the cost, discovering new innovations based on you know, very rare interactions with data. And, um, and so that, that's what's fueling the, you know, the self-driving uh, automobiles or the, or the autonomous drones, for instance. You collect lots and lots of sensor data. And then um, what happened is that when um, organizations start collecting a lot of data, you, you got to put it somewhere. You, got, you have to have a physical space, so you need a data center. And data centers are basically massive constructions of concrete and also an in energy infrastructure that powers that, in, uh, that installation. And then you have to have these servers also that meet. And this is where the biggest cost is because these servers are made with um, you know, precious metals, for instance, that's one component for all the circuits or the CPU chips. And then they're made um, with uh, lots of parts, moving parts. And they're usually very high cost, and um, and they use a lot of energy as well. So, in the in what we saw happening is that uh, there was a massive growth in certain regions of the world where data centers were exploding, and everybody's looking for the next place where they can realize the energy efficiencies. And they were bringing them up to northern Europe, for instance, where it's much cooler, but that's not always possible because you know data there's a lag uh, lag issues of data, but also you can't really scale. The technologies that we have infinitely because you know it's a lot of energy and space uh, space utilization 
And so what we did was we um, we realized that uh, to be able to get to that, you have to solve some of these problems. You have to solve the energy problem. You have to solve the space problem. And you have to solve, uh, you know, the, um, the ease of use problem because they're pretty complex right now. And our target focus is always hospitals. We were always looking at hospitals as the location where we would put our data centers. But you're quite right. It became very evident shortly after that every industry was seeing an explosion of data and uh, that whatever we built for the hospitals actually was relevant across all the other industries. If you're enjoying Impact Unicorns, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell to receive notifications of new shows to bring the most relevant Impact Venture stories to the podcast. If you would like to review the show, go to the Apple Podcasts mobile app or iTunes to leave a rating and review. Hospitals are a very interesting you know, lead customer, if I can call it that, because of the sensitivity of the data. It's not always possible to build the, the data center in Iceland um, and assure the hospital that the data you know, is, is uh, being safely kept in a different jurisdiction. So I imagine that that's a, a factor uh, with many of your potential customers of data centers, the need to have it somewhat local or at least in the same jurisdiction. Absolutely correct, because that's where the regulation was going. Um, Genomics England was actually my biggest um, uh, sort of inspiration for this after I met, had a chance meeting with um, the Secretary of Health in the UK, uh, Jeremy Hunt, at that time. And they said, you know, what we promise is that we promise to keep that data locally. In fact, the Genomics England promised to keep it on a military base with the building surrounded by barbed wire because they said, if we lose this whole game of uh, the the trust of the, of the individuals that we're trying to serve, then we lose the, the whole ability to build a better healthcare system based on genomics. And, uh, and so every other country realized that they cannot let this data go outside of their region. So data sovereignty is critical for this uh, situation. I think more and more are, are realizing this, that uh, especially with the, the head of the MI6 recently said in, the, in this last month that, Data, uh, data sovereignty is critical for us because once other organizations have our data, we lose this uh, sovereignty of our data. So the contours of the problem were becoming clear. Yeah, you need to you know, store the data in less space with less energy and locally with a secure you know, data sovereignty assurance. So how did you go about, uh, from an engineering standpoint, thinking about the problem of reducing the space uh, and the you know reducing the energy requirements to store all this information. Uh, so basically, what happened was that we are we are not uh, coming from the data in industry in particular. We were coming from the outside looking to build a solution. And my co-founder Doug Fortune, who has you know twenty years experience at the time in data centers and building data centers or understanding data storage systems, uh, we were looking at the problem from the hospital perspective. How we can help them solve these same issues that you mentioned, space, energy, and ease of use, long-term storage. So we were thinking outside the rack is now what we like to say. It. We, were, we were not wedded to the rack, we were thinking outside the rack. And that's how we came upon our design innovation. We said, what we need to do is store data and we need to give uh, access to the data. And so we built something that was completely different. I should say by, the, by an interesting um, point is that when you look at data servers, they were initially actually designed in the 1890s. And uh, that was when Morse code was being uh, was used and being implemented across railway lines, for instance. And they needed a, a uh, like a, um, a component, it's like a shelf or a server 
where they can put all the electronics in. And then when the telecom industry came about, the same people migrated from Morse code to telecom brought the same design in because it was handy. It was the same, you know, they had a, um, a form factor they could use and uh, adapt it to the telecom industry. And then when the telecom industry grew into the data storage industry, they had a form factor, which was the one that, they, that we've been using for Morse code. So that's how the, this form factor became a standard for this industry, but we were coming from the outside. So we designed something that was completely innovative and novel. And by our design, we were able to decrease the space. And that was our first realization that, you know, this can be actually useful for everybody else as well, not just hospitals, because space is an issue everywhere. Uh, and how about the energy? How is it you're bringing down the, the energy consumption? Okay, a very good question. So um, the, in typical, where the typically where the industry was going was they were going to higher, faster, stronger. So they wanted to build bigger and bigger chips that could uh, compute really, really um, lots of data very quickly, right? And so that was what we call the Ferrari of systems. Is that the, and but we were going towards the other side, the Volvos, the reliable, uh, energy efficient uh, systems that could last a long time. And what we were looking for was we were selecting our parts. First of all, we're selecting parts that are low energy consuming. And uh, the second aspect we realized is that there are ways that we can do this that allow us to do, uh, do ask, um, data operations in a more parallelized fashion. If you, do it, if you do one node, you can do one crunching of one data, but then it, it's, it's kind of sequential. But if you take that data file and you split it up and you get multiple nodes to work on it, you then can uh, make the speed 10 times faster or even a thousand times faster. And so that's what that's what we are uh, from the bottom up. That's how how our software is designed to do everything in a massive parallel way. So we can write uh, at a thousand times faster speed or retrieve data in a faster way. You know, our software, for instance, takes a data file and just splits it up and distributes it across the systems. It can, it can be distributed across a city or distributed across the world, as long as the uh, the bandwidth is very fast you can uh, retrieve the data really quickly and um analyze it locally sort of thing and so in a, in a, in a paralyzed fashion so we can use very low energy chips and achieve very fast uh, computational rates just like um, the high-end performance systems i understand uh, is it fair to say that you're, you're getting higher utilization of the chips by parallelizing Yes, exactly. We're also energy, more energy efficient. So, so not only bringing data uh, energy efficiency to data storage, but we're bringing energy efficiency to computation, which is the second part of this problem for energy efficiency overall for data. Fascinating. Okay, so um, tell us a little bit about you know the the evolution of the company because you know the, for our for our listeners, it's always fascinating to hear how companies grow up. So, you've been at this five years. Tell us about some of the important milestones that you've gone through and where you are at the moment. Yeah, so we, we when we started, of course, we started with the principle that we can bootstrap, and uh, we we built our we spent two years sort of in uh, uh, skunk works, I guess, and um, and we were building our own system. So Doug and I, we felt in our garage, we were building the component parts, assembling them, and I was going around trying to find the customer bases. I did find an early customer. In fact, um, the health department at the government of Canada wanted to buy about 20 units. 
And that was about uh, a second year into the project and uh, it took us about six months to get that sale ready. But then we hit upon a very interesting snag and that is that uh, you know they have a high procurement wall, <laughs> the government especially. And so, which is very difficult for us to circumvent. So when, then we said, okay, well, in terms of our journey, we had to register uh, a company and try to figure out how we can get um, funding. And the very first thing that happened was that um, the problem that we are working on, which is energy efficient storage, data privacy, is we were able to get grants right away and grants to work on this project. So we've been working on grants uh, since 2018. And, uh, and awards, when we would pitch at an event, a competition with 200 deep tech startups, we came in first, 50,000 was the prize. Um, when we went to, um, you know, climate, climate tech is a, one of the interesting emerging programs in European Commission, we went and pitched, there was a 1,200 competitors across 40 countries, we came in the top 10 and got a lot of resources to continue developing the company and stuff. So that took off in, in, in a direction where we were able to then develop our next generation technologies, just using grant funding and awards. And over the course of the uh, history of the company, how much funding have you raised just simply through grants and you know, innovation awards? About 2.4 million. Well, that's extraordinary. Uh, well, congratulations on that, first of all, yeah. but that, that's, that's a remarkable achievement. Um, and so tell us a little bit, you know, now that you've developed the technology, who are the customers that you're, you know, uh, courting and, um, you know, what problems are you solving for them? Okay. Well, the, the, the customer um, framework that we have now developed as a persona are those customers that are amassing large volumes of data. So this is the hospitals, government, and uh, major research institutions like CERN. They're collecting large volumes of data that they need to keep for a very long period of time. So a hospital, for instance, will now, when a baby's born, will build re digital records, but want to keep it for 100 years, for instance. And uh, so this is a large bulk of data that has to be accessible. You have to be able to give, uh, it has to be readily accessible. And so we're targeting this kind of customers. They have, a, a, you know, they have a massive data volumes. They need to keep it for a very long period of time. They need to decrease their cost, and the data has to be accessible. It can also be banking, for instance, and other organizations is another one that uh, that's a good industry segment. And are you working directly with these businesses because they have their own data centers, or are you also working with uh, outsourced third-party data centers, if I can call it that? Uh, well, we uh, over the last couple of days, when the, when the last couple of years, when you were asking about our journey, we've been people have been finding out about where we're building, and so we're being approached by a number of different industries, data centers in particular. Um, uh, but in terms of the uh, the data centers that we're targeting, all the major hospitals that are leading in in terms of digital health typically have their own data center that's very close. So when the, Governments are realizing that they need to keep data more private. So that's also another in, interesting segment for us. But the large research institutes like CERN have exacting needs for their data storage. And uh, they're distributed among 25, 23 countries. And the data has to be accessible among their, um, their partners in these 23 countries. And this actually fits very well with our model. Our data is very highly distributed and it can be managed uh, remotely as one namespace across the world, for instance, if you wanted to. 
And uh, so that's that, that works really well in our in our design favor for how we manage data. And how are you, um, you know, interacting with your customers uh, in terms of uh, the model? Um, are you going to be uh, uh, an equipment provider or a solution provider? How does that work? So basically, we what we happen to see is that the, uh, the customers I mentioned to you, hospitals, governments, and these large research institutions, is that their data is growing year on year. So we just see a massive data growth. And what we want to be is partners hand in hand and helping them to scale their data storage needs. That includes computation and storage. So we hope to have recurring revenue with them year on year by having a good, uh, like a, a sort of a strategic partnership that allows them to get systems as they need it. Just like, you know, giving, getting candy whenever they have to have a party. It's basically dropped on their uh, doorstep and they can consume it as they need it. Excellent. Well, those long-term relationships are critical for, for building a business to get that revenue ramp. And 2022 is a very important year because this is when I think you really scale up on the revenue side. Tell us a little bit about um, what you're planning to do this year to start uh, commercializing and growing the technology and you know, what kind of uh, capital investments you're planning for the business. Well, we have uh, already customers interested. So the customers interested are just the ones I mentioned. We have the major particle physics lab research. We have a couple of universities. We have National Center for Atmospheric Research, other models. We also have some defense industry contracts that are interested in the center, already signed us uh, with us some sort of MOUs to explore further in our technology. And what we want to do this year in particular is to be able to deliver some of the very high-end systems that we have. We have already working in the lab as uh, alpha products, and we want to be able to now develop them and commercialize them. So this is the commercialization phase that we're going through, which is getting obtaining certifications, um, and building the, the larger scale systems. And that's our objective this year with about 2 million in funding that we will uh, obtain through convertible note or safe notes. And then at the end of this year, 2022 is coming up, we will raise another 10 million to, to scale the, the, the production and using contract manufacturers. So contract manufacturers are basically in Europe, in North America, and they'll build these systems end to end to deliver to the customer so that we don't need to maintain any kind of warehousing. It's kind of like a drop shipping model. Fantastic. And this is the kind of business where I imagine there's a lot of, um, you know, ways of financing it. So it's not just equity capital, but it's quite capital efficient. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about that picture as well. Okay. So we, uh, we have been capital efficient to date, actually. We've been, and uh, we, the way we have been uh, able to do that is by, realizing that there's a lot of cost savings we can do by building systems our our by ourselves and um but in as we grow what we, we can realize is that there is a factory model for instance to and that enable us to uh, once we have contracts or invoices uh, purchase orders we can take them to organizations that'll give us the cash to build build that uh, product get it to the customer and then uh, and and get uh, continue to grow like that and as you sort of uh, go through this uh, growth phase in the next year, um, what are you thinking of in terms of your footprint um, geographically? Because, you know, you're based in, in Switzerland, you have um, other operating companies set up in different parts of the world. How are you thinking about that footprint uh, evolving as you become a global business? We are already 
setting up a shop in the US because there was a big interest in what we were working on. When we went to Silicon Valley and presented there, we were immediately um, generated a lot of interest from investors and uh, the customers in particular. And so our first market would be Europe and North America, and we're scaling in these two, two regions. And then gradually we'll um, look at other emerging areas like uh, Middle East, uh, there's already an interest from one of the uh, companies that we talked to in California to help emerging markets build their data sovereignty through our technology because they, they need very simple and energy efficient systems to be able to operate in these emerging markets because of lack of infrastructure. And so there, so we over time, I think over two, three years, we'll start scaling out to other regional markets. But we want to be able to build in that regional market as well. So as long as the capacity or capability is there, that allows to be, uh, you know, enable us to build locally to sort of the local markets, regional markets. And so the, the two million that you're raising now, what will be the, the major use of that capital? And what would you anticipate using the 10 million for, you know, in a year's time if things go well? Well, the two million will allow us to build the, uh, the large system to deliver to first, the first two customers that we have already interested in the, in the technology. And uh, it allows us to uh, get the field team ready for sales and marketing. That's important because at the moment we have a very small team that does sales and marketing, but we want to be able to expand their capabilities. And uh, but by delivering that first two systems, we'll be able to generate about 10 million in revenue. The 10 million allows us to go to these contract manufacturers that we've already been discussions with in Germany, for instance, and the US, and then get the systems onto their production um, sort of um, production queues to be able to then scale out the production as we uh, meet the demand for the 200 customers that we want to target in the next five years. So you'll be growing your organization quite swiftly uh, in this period. So where are you right now as, as a team, as a company, and what kind of headcount growth are you going to be expecting and in what kind of areas? Yeah, and uh, I see one of the great things about the today is that you can build organizations across the world in a very distributed way and uh, that they can all work together seamlessly and we are doing that very well already in our model we have a team in canada that does a lot of rd we have a sales team that's basically in belgium and we have sort of a corporate uh, team here in, in switzerland but we're now also building out a sales and research team in the us on the, on the east coast and that's the, the first start steps that we've taken there. So I think we our headcount is 10 right now. We hope to be about uh, double that by the end of this 2022 and, and delivering the first systems. I think that and maintaining capital efficiency means that you can contract out some things. You can bring in experts to work on certain aspects of the, the development that's needed. And, uh, and But the core team remains about 10 at the moment. That is incredibly lean. So... Um, you know, it all leads to the capital efficient model that you have. Um, so in terms of revenues, what are you expecting to achieve at the end of 2022? And what's the outlook for a year or two out from there as well? So that's a good question. We have, uh, with the sales that we have projected, we should get about 10 million in revenue or on our books by the end of 2022. And uh, that's targeting 10 customers that already expressed interest in getting two to land in the sales, for instance. 
And then years after that, if you scale that, they take the 20 customers who expressed interest and maybe they're buying in 2023 as their cycles come along, we're looking at about 60 million in revenue in 2023. And then it goes up from there because we have about 200 customers that we were targeting over five years of growth. Remember 200 customers are not a lot for a sales team of like 10 or 20 to actually target. And they're, they're year on year, their data is growing. So they need more data storage and they're replacing old existing systems. So then they can replace it with our systems. And so we should be able to get a 1 billion in revenue by 2027, that's our target. Well, good, that's that five years to, or just over five years to unicorn status, at least in revenues from valuation standpoint, perhaps even sooner. So that's a fantastic ramp. And you know, I love the model of uh, not just growing the number of customers, but just increasing the amount of business you do with them year on year. It's a, it's a, it's a real um, strong penetration uh, that you're going to get, I think, especially with a very interesting segment of customers the, that are high security, you know, uh, often quite uh, leading, if not bleeding edge in terms of the way they, they use the data. So um, very interesting model and, you know, lots to look forward to. Well, thank you. And I'm also excited about uh, next year's growth potential as well. And of course, um, you know, we wouldn't be able to do it without the, the community that supports us. And I'm really grateful for all the people that have given us support. I'm talking about the Swiss government, for instance, has given us um, a lot of uh, support in terms of building models and getting out, uh, getting uh, expert mentors for us. Um, European Commission, which gives us lots of support. Every year, they brought, I mean, for instance, they recognize the technology we're building. They brought in a commission called the Greenhouse Gas Commission and connected us with their we found a wonderful partner in Sweden and also Austria where we can now build for zero waste technologies for data storage, which is, I'm really, really excited about this. Uh, it was always on our mind, how can we build a full circular economy model for data storage? But there's always some lingering problems. There's some, the printed circuit boards, for instance, are very difficult to recycle. You can only extract certain other things that are, and uh, here with this collaboration now we have, we can now build towards a zero waste model for data storage systems. This will be really revolutionary. And this only underlines the incredible ESG um, and impact uh, value proposition that you have. It's, it's beyond energy efficiency, but you're heading for full you know, circularity, uh, the, the, the least possible environmental footprint, which in this business, which uses so much you know, in terms of precious metals and uh, this this footprint beyond the heat uh, that's going to be really important and probably a very important differentiator. Correct. And one of the things that we recognize, what we must recognize early on is that when you're using 3% of the world's energy just to run data systems around the world, which is what the case is right now, that's more than what Germany consumes, more than what Japan consumes. And then you realize that, you know, the, what the carbon footprint for energy is, well, that's 3.7% of the global emissions are due just to data for carbon emissions. And that's more than the airline industry. Everybody forces focuses on the airline industry, but they don't realize that our habits of data, just by clicking on things and sharing videos, et cetera, consumes a lot of energy and thus emits a lot of carbon. Over the past 20 years, I've worked with hundreds of entrepreneurs to build impact unicorns. In my experience, every company that has a transformative positive effect on the world does so by building strong partnerships with communities, investors and governments to solve society's biggest challenges. If you'd like to learn more about how innovative entrepreneurs can help to build a more sustainable and inclusive future, read my award-winning book, 
Powering Prosperity, a Citizen's Guide to Shaping the 21st Century. You mentioned a statistic to me once, which is that if you send an email with an attachment, that's the equivalent carbon footprint of a small plastic bag. Is that true? Yes. In fact, BBC uh, highlighted that to me on an interesting article. That, that is that, you know, when you send an email, it has to go through a network, it has to be processed by something and then stored. And that takes energy. And that energy equivalent is basically the amount that you need to produce a single plastic bag. And, and you know, and the corollary to that is we use 100,000 plastic bags per second around the world. But we send 3.5 million emails per second around the world. So it's really out of, um, out of whack there. Well, I don't think we're going to be sending any fewer emails or clicking any less on social media. Um, but uh, I think uh, what you're doing with this orders of magnitude improvement on space and energy efficiency is going to make a huge contribution, uh, not to mention a great business. So, Bupinda, thanks very much for uh, sharing your, your thoughts with us. Um, best of luck to you uh, for 2022. I think it's going to be a breakout year. And come tell us about it in a year's time and, and tell us where you are and all your achievements at that time. And also, thank you, Indranel. That's been wonderful talking to you. And I wish you also, a, a, you know, we are recording at the end of the year. I wish you a happy new year to, your, to you and your listeners. And uh, I would be delighted to come back and uh, tell you about our progress. Fabulous. Take care. Have a great year. Okay, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Impact Unicorns, don't forget to rate and review this show by scrolling down and clicking Rate This Podcast. And join me next week as I talk to more inspirational entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative companies.